Morning, Tri-Cities Church. It's a great day to be together to sing praises to our God who is awesome, He's mighty, He's holy, He's worthy, and what a privilege it is to gather in His name and to celebrate all of that together. Well, today is extra special for me and my wife uh, because today, 29 years ago, We stood on this stage right here in this place and made some promises to each other. We were, we were babies, weren't we? <laughs> I remember it was, such, it was just such a whirlwind day for us. This place was packed. and it, I, I was serving a church at that time, my first church, and so a lot of those people were there, a lot of people from Stacy's Home Church, a lot of people from, we went to Atlanta Christian College right here, so a lot of those people were here, and then we had people from her family, my family, and we, we assumed that if we didn't know the person, they were from the other person's family, so we may have had some extras that day, but it was, it was such a great day. We remember at the end of that day, our cheeks were hurting because we were smiling so much. I was just, it, was, it was an incredible day. And another thing I remember is that, and it should have told me a lot about who I was marrying. I remember the notebook. <laughs> Ladies who have been married, uh, do you know what I'm talking about, the notebook? As you're getting prepared for, for a wedding, it had, had everything. It had lists. It had colors. It had names. I'm not sure. Probably some notes about me. I don't know. Um, but the notebook was sacred. You didn't mess with the notebook. You see, planning for a wedding, planning for a marriage ceremony is a complex thing. You've got the selection of the wedding party. You've got the making of the guest list. You've got creating and sending out invitations. You've got choosing a venue. You've got planning the reception, the flowers, the, the food, the cake. Um, trying to find a, a, an affordable but good photographer, right? <laughs> Somebody who will officiate. I like that guy. <laughs> so... Uh, and, and something I encourage for everyone that's considering marriage, you've you got to think about premarital counseling. How long will that go? And will you be involved with that? And where to go, go for the honeymoon? And that, that all sounds very complicated and expensive, <laughs> doesn't it? And then, of course, a huge deal is choosing the bride's dress, right? Choosing the bride's dress. Uh, we didn't have to do that with Stacy. Her mom made the dress, so uh, she chose that. I never even saw it before the wedding, anything. Uh, but I remember going with my nieces and, and them choosing the, their dresses uh, for their weddings, and it was a big deal. And then, of course, the infamous bridesmaids' dresses. <laughs> um, ladies, any of you ever had to wear any of these? Show, show some of these, Nikki. This one's uh, the uh, Scary Barbie, uh, Rags to Riches, I don't know, Disney Princess, uh, Tablecloth, Curtains, not sure what that's all about, and I don't know what's wrong with this one. I don't see anything wrong with that one, I, I don't know, ladies. 
I think the bride chooses these dresses sometimes to make sure, to make sure that she looks better than any other lady in the room, right? We can see right through it, brides. So today, we're in the second part of a series that we're, we're calling Stories about the parables of Jesus, and today's story will feature a wedding, and the specific attention is going to be paid to the bridesmaids. And as complicated as modern weddings are, we have no idea because a Jewish wedding, an ancient Jewish wedding in the first century was way more complicated in terms of culture and traditions. A wedding was the most momentous occasion in the society besides a religious feast. Uh, There wasn't much else to do. And so when there was a wedding, man, everybody got involved. Some of these customs were practiced for centuries after, and some are still even practiced in some cultures today. But before we read the parable of the ten bridesmaids in Matthew 25, let me give you some context about marriage in in ancient Israel in the, the, the time of Jesus. The marriage process could be broken down into three different parts. First, there was the, and I'm, I'm going to kill these pronunciations, so I'm not Hebrew, so I think it's called the Shadukim, Shadukim, and this was the commitment contract. If you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, this is where he goes to and, and makes a contract, and it doesn't even involve the bride and the groom. It's the parents that are making that contract. And uh, so that's, that's the first part, and, and this was a proposal on the part of the groom's parents, and it involved presenting gifts or a dowry to the bride's parents. And then the second part later came the erosine or the betrothal. And this was a little stronger than the modern concept of an engagement. We think engagement and, and it, you, you know, you have the ring and everything else, but these days that almost doesn't mean anything, you know, until, until you walk down the aisle or, or go to the courthouse or whatever you do. Uh, but this was actually a legal binding for the couple. Uh, it was legal, but then they still, in a biblical sense, could not be together, but they were legally married. This is where we find Mary and Joseph in Luke 2. Remember, he was betrothed, they were betrothed, and then he finds out that she's expecting, and then he considers divorce. It would have had to have been a divorce proceeding. So this is the betrothal. This was a a time period that was designated specifically for the groom to literally get his house in order, to go and prepare a home for his bride, and then come back and get her when the time had come for the wedding celebration. Does this sound a little familiar? I will go and prepare a place for you. And then Jesus, Jesus uses this language. Let's look at it. John 14, 1 through 3, he says, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or dwellings. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says, just like the groom would say, I go and I prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am you may be also. This, this little passage in John 14, Jesus' words to his disciples help prepare us for today's story, help prepare us for this parable. One professor talked about the, uh, the complex betrothal system, and he says, Typically, the betrothal took place in the bride's father's house and was a festive occasion with blessings, candles, and celebration. And during the period between the betrothal and the marriage, which could have extended several years, 
The young woman remained in her father's house. And then there's one final part of the three parts of a marriage in ancient Jewish times, and that was the Nisuin, the actual wedding celebration. Now, wedding celebrations tended to go on for quite a few days, sometimes up to a week. And I can remember a few years ago, my dear friend, she was here last week, Amran. She is originally from India. When, when they first arrived here, she was like, you know, I want, I want to see an American wedding. I would love to see an American wedding. And knowing what I know about Indian weddings and Indian culture, I was like, no, you don't. <laughs> really, you don't. Uh, I, I knew that, that Indian weddings, you know, sometimes they go on for about three or four or five days, and, and you invite a thousand of your closest friends to celebrate this big feast. And so years later, we were talking to her. I said, did you ever see a wedding? She's like, yeah, I did, and you were right. It was like <laughs> 20 minutes and, and done. <laughs> like, yeah, it doesn't even compare. And it's the same way with an ancient Jewish wedding. On the night of the wedding feast, the groom would go to the home of his bride, and he would speak to the bride's parents, and he would say, can I take the bride and marry her? Now, it was a tradition, and it was a sense of honor for the, the bride's parents to protest a little bit, to give him a little hard time. In fact, the harder time that they would give him, the longer it took, the more that they delayed him, the higher an honor it was for this bride. So there was, was a, a period of delay, and maybe they were just giving him a little... Um, bit of a dose of what he was going to experience during marriage. I don't know, but <laughs> today's story, we find Jesus in the middle of this, uh, the, the story in the middle of this waiting period, in the middle of the, the period before the grand procession to the groom's house. So let's look at this, this parable. It's found in Matthew 25, the first 13 verses. We'll read together. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten bridesmaids who took their lamps And went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The five who were foolish didn't take enough olive oil for their lamps. But the other five were wise enough to take enough extra oil. When the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and fell asleep like you would at midnight. At midnight, they were roused by the shout, Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. And all the bridesmaids got up and prepared their lamps. And then the foolish ones asked the others, Please, please give us some of your oil because our lamps are going out. But the others replied, We don't have enough for all of us. Go to to a shop and buy some for yourselves at midnight. (laughs) But while they were gone to buy the oil, the bridegroom came. And then those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was locked. Later, when the bridesmaids returned, they stood outside calling, Lord, Lord, open the door for us. But he called back, believe me, I don't know you. So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. As we study this parable and the other parables that we're going to talk about in this series, I think it's important for us to talk about some rules, some tips reading and understanding the parables of Jesus. If you receive one of the handouts as you came in, on the back of it, where the announcements are, at the very bottom, I put a link for an article called 10 Tips for Understanding and Interpreting Jesus' Parables. I'd love for you to look at that at some time. Not right now. Sometime. 
but I wanted to pull out a couple of them for the sake of, uh, of time and, and, and some that I feel like are, are important. They're guidelines for today. First of all, not every minor detail in this parable has significant meaning. The author of this article writes it this way. He says, because parables are stories, they sometimes need supporting information in order for the main idea of the parable to make sense and for it to have power. For example, here in this parable of the, the ten bridesmaids or the ten virgins, the story shares that the five women were wise and the other were f- five foolish. But it would be wrong to conclude that 50% of the people are wise and 50% of people are foolish, right, from, from this parable. In fact, the fact that there were ten virgins totally total with Five wise and five foolish is an inconsequential detail that merely helps the story progress. So oftentimes pressing on insignificant details can make the story unravel, actually, and we miss the entire point of the story. So that's really important. And then secondly, be careful about allegorical interpretations of parables. It's very similar to what we just said. There have been some throughout church history who have thought that the meaning of parables was hidden. And, that un- and they were unable to be explained without applying some kind of special meaning to the text. And the problem with this is they normally disregard the plain teaching of the text. And they confuse us with ideas from the interpreter. So we're not going to get into any of those weeds. We're not going to mess around and try to figure out things from the parable that are not defined. And we're not going to overanalyze parts of this story that are simply not told to us by Jesus. For our parable today, actually the meaning is pretty straightforward. We can look at the end and see exactly what Jesus says it means. If you look at verse 13, it says, So you too, this is the point, So you too must keep watch, for you do not know the day or hour of my return. Keep watch. Be ready. Be on guard. And in the words of the Terminator, Jesus says, I'll be back. Yeah. To help us understand further, I want to look at a significant point that comes out of the story. Well, it helps us to understand, actually, the whole story when we look at the whole context of of where the story comes. If you look at the chapter before, chapter 24 of Matthew, you'll see at the very beginning of that, Jesus and his disciples are are leaving the temple, and the the disciples are just oohing and on at how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus kind of gives us throwaway statements. He's like, yeah, well, it's all going to be destroyed. And they're like, what, what, what? Hold on, hold on. And so they start asking all these questions. They say, well, when is this going to take place? And how will we know? And how will we know when all this is going to start? And, and when are you going to come back? And so the next few verses, chapter 24 and 25, are Jesus teaching and telling stories answering this question. And, and, and part of it, in, in chapter 24, he talks about Noah and the days of Noah and how that in the days of Noah, people were just going on with their regular lives and then all of a sudden, rain started. And so he's emphasizing that his return will be sudden and unexpected. And he talks about a, a story about some master and some servants. And the point of that is, hey, while you're waiting on the return, keep working. Don't stop working. When the master goes away, he wants to know his servants are still behind doing their work. And then um, in, in chapter 25, he tells a story, and you may be familiar with the parable of the talents, right? And the point of that in this context is, hey, while you are waiting and while you are 
looking for my return? Use what I've given you. Use the gifts I've given you while you wait. And then at the end of this whole discourse, and it's, they, you may hear some preachers call it the Olivet Discourse. It's because he's on the Mount of Olives. But at the end of this saying, at the end of all this sermon that he's, that he's basically just spilling out to his disciples, he, he tells a story of some sheep and some goats. And the point of the sheep and the goats is this. There will be a day when we will be held accountable for what we do here. There will be a day of judgment. But before he talks about the talents and before he talks about the sheep and the goats, Jesus tells this interesting little story about a wedding. And so let's talk about this wedding story for just a few minutes. First, I believe that the theme of the story is based on a promise. And we've already talked about that promise. The promise is, I am coming back, and it will be longer than you think, but be ready. You see, the return of Jesus is a theme throughout the New Testament. It's just as much a part of our faith as John 3.16, as love your neighbor as yourself. It's just as much a part of our faith as the sweet Christmas story that we love to tell. It's just as much a part of our faith as the exciting Easter resurrection that we love to celebrate. The return of Jesus. Jesus promised it, as we've already read in John 14. I'm going to go prepare a place, and then I'm going to come back for you to take you to that place. And in fact, right after Jesus ascends into heaven, if you look in Acts, the first chapter, the 11th verse, two angels appear because the, the disciples are just uh, like any of us would be if our closest friend just kind of floated up into the air. Uh, they're just staring up into the sky, and these angels say, Men of Galilee, why are you standing here staring into heaven? Jesus has, taken, take, Jesus has been taken from you into heaven, but someday, what? He will return from heaven in the same way you saw him go. So if you truly believe in Jesus this morning, then you believe that he's going to return. He said it. His followers confirmed it. And it's a guarantee from Scripture. And of course, not all believe. You you know people who don't believe, probably in your close circle of friends. Maybe it's the lady that works next to you in the, the office or cubicle right next to you. Maybe it's your... It's your neighbor or your brother-in-law or your sister-in-law, but he can't just just can't accept the fact that you believe all this science fiction stuff about Jesus' return. The Bible talks about that. Second Peter three, verses three and four. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, what scoffers will come, scoffers, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say. What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. Hey, nothing's happening. Nothing has changed. Y'all are silly. Y'all are stupid. You're fools. And then sadly, the passage goes on to say that people who don't believe this will continue scoffing to their own peril. So the story continues. And it continues talking about how important it is to be prepared, preparation. As we read, Jesus puts the bridesmaids in two different categories. What are they? They're wise and foolish. Wise and foolish. All right. Just making sure you're still with me. Throughout Scripture, the wise are those who do the will of God, and the foolish are just the opposite. They're the people who want to do it their own way, however they want to do it. In this story, it's the women who prepared ahead by bringing extra oil who are wise. 
And all the women that uh, forgot the extra oil are the foolish ones. All of them had been invited to the wedding. All of them had lamps. But it was those who had lighted lamps when it came time for the, the wedding who were allowed to go to the feast. Have you ever been caught unprepared? Honestly, when I have a nightmare, this is true. Whenever I have any kind of nightmare, the, the, the details change. But so many times, probably 95% of the times, it's a, it's a nightmare about not being prepared. About, oh my gosh, nobody told me about this. Nobody told me about this. And I don't know where that comes from. I really don't. But I do know this. There was a time in my life when this really happened. Um, I um, was a young music and youth minister. I mean, this was years ago. Thank you, Lord. I've grown, changed, and his grace has grown me up. But I was young and foolish. And I was asked to lead a workshop for other music ministers at at this music conference. And it was uh, to look at new music for Easter that was coming up. And it was such an honor for me as, as a young music minister to be asked to lead this. And what you would do is the music would start and you would direct them like a choir. It's all these music ministers, you know, professionals in their field. And so be, I, I was like, yeah, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And being young and foolish, I put the music aside in my office <laughs> And then pretty much forgot about it until the night before. And I was like, yeah, I'll just look at it the night before. Well, I looked at it the night before and went, oh, crud. <laughs> this music is hard. It is not easy. And so I stayed up as late as I could all night just going over it, going over it, going over it. And let me tell you this. I don't remember much about the conference. And I think it's because I have blocked it out. I have just totally erased it from my mind, but I do remember being sorely embarrassed because those music ministers were sight reading and they knew that music better than I did. It it, it was not a proud moment in my life. But the women here prepared ahead and they still had lighted lamps when the bridegroom came. Now let's think about those lighted lamps for just a moment. What were they for? What are lights used for in general? Of course, practically, what are they used for? What are lights used for? So you can see. So that, and, and it, it was dark. It was in the middle of the night. There weren't street lights. I mean, most of the time we can still go out and, and see pretty well these days, right? Because there's so much light in the city. But this is rural, ancient times, and there's no street lights. So they were used to see. And with, without them, you would stumble and fall. And immediately I thought of, and, and those of you that know Scripture, some may have already thought of the Scripture when I said this. It's Psalm 119, 105. It says, what? Read it with me. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. The word of God, the Scriptures, a lamp and a light to light your way. Now, this parable doesn't make an explicit connection, so I'm not going to tell you this morning. That's what the lamp stands for. I'm just saying other scriptures just pointed me, pointed me to it. And I think it's safe to say that keeping the Word of God close, spending time in it frequently is definitely going to help you prepare for His return. And then the lights that were carried by the bridal party were also a great source to create a sense of celebration. Can't you imagine what the site would look like? What a great and awesome site. Just this crowd of people walking through the streets of Jerusalem or, or wherever they were and, 
and you could hear the laughter and you could hear the noise and the cheers and they're probably jeering the couple a little bit and probably singing them songs and you see these, these lights all lighted up. I, I think what a beautiful sight. Psalm 135 verse 3 calls the people of God to celebrate. It says, praise the Lord for the Lord is good. Celebrate his lovely name with music. Throughout the Psalms and in the New Testament, we're encouraged as followers of Christ to regularly celebrate Him. Each week, we gather to celebrate with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And we also gather each week to celebrate the forgiveness and salvation that comes through the death of Jesus Christ by doing what? Celebrating communion together. We celebrate. We celebrate. I love how we do communion here, by the way. Uh, so many times if you go other places, and I'm not downing that, I think it's irreverent, but, but it's so silent and sad. And we celebrate. We celebrate communion here. And I love that scripture in 1 Corinthians that says, For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, what are you doing? You're announcing the Lord's death until he comes. So our weekly celebration is a testimony that you believe one day he's going to return. When you walk to these tables, you're saying, I believe it. I believe it. J. Ellsworth Callis writes, I'm not suggesting that going to church regularly and by maintaining a faithful devotional life, a person wins brownie points with God. But I do know by experience that when we keep buying oil week after week and year after year, we are more likely to have oil on hand when the valley is dark. It's just as simple as that. Amen? Amen. The lighted lamps the five bridesmaids carried were also a source of identification. If you saw them, you knew they were part of the wedding party. If you saw them, you knew they belonged. Jesus, Jesus points this out, I believe, so that, to help us realize, just like he said in Matthew 5.16, that when you let your deeds shine, your good deeds shine, everyone else will know whose you are. How does that verse go? In the same way, let your deeds shine for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. Our, de- our good deeds don't save us. That's not what saves us. That's not what gets us in the door. But they are good indicators. They identify who we belong to. They're good ways for people to say, hey, you're different. Hey, she is, she is just way different than anybody else I know, and I want, I want whatever she has. And then next... This wedding tale that Jesus is telling is teaching us to have patience. Teaching us to have patience as we wait for him. In this story, the bridegroom is delayed. Jesus doesn't tell us why, but that's not what's important. What is important is that the delay doesn't breed doubt, that it doesn't breed unpreparedness. You know, a lot of times when you're waiting on something, you just get tired of waiting, right? And you get lackadaisical. And that's what's important here. Uh, I, I remember a few years ago, <laughs> playing the piano for a wedding at my brother-in-law's Spanish church, waiting on not the bridegroom, but the bride. <laughs> I, had, um, I, I, I came to the church, and, and I, I was walking in the church. I shook the, shook the groom's hand and congratulated him and then took my notebook, and it had about 30 minutes worth of music. I had timed it. Right in that notebook, it had about 30 minutes, and the, the wedding was supposed to start at 4 o'clock. So I started at 3.30, playing this music I had, and 
played the songs, played the songs, played the songs, got, got to right, right at 4 o'clock, and I'm looking back, you know, because I always say, I'll signal you. And so I'm looking back at my sister, and she's like, Okay, well, I've been to weddings that started late, right? I mean, I'm like, okay, she's putting on a few extra touches, you know, fixing her hair, whatever. So I went, I flipped back to the beginning. I'm like, I'm going to play these first two songs again. So I play, 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 play the second one. And I look back. Okay, so I'll keep playing. I'm like, I'm going to play, play a couple more, a couple more. And every time I'd look back between the songs, she's like, so I play all the way through the, the notebook again, and I'm like, okay, that's another 30 minutes. And then an hour later, I finally just stopped. I was like, I can't keep playing. And people were walking around doing their thing. You know, kids were just running up and down the aisle. So we all just kind of stopped and started just hanging out. Finally, finally, and remember I said this wedding was supposed to start at 4 o'clock. It was 530 and somebody said, Ella está aquí, ella está aquí. She's here. And so we had a wedding <laughs> two hours later. It was just crazy. It was crazy. But I remember what it was like. I remember what it was like to have to wait. The Apostle Paul knew the importance of, of patience. He wrote his first letter to the church in, in Thessalonia, that Greek city in he wrote it to encourage them and to actually reteach them and to uh, tell them about the second coming, that it's, that it's true, it's real, and it's going to happen because some of them had started to doubt and some of them had received false information, and so he's teaching them. And they loved his letter so much, they loved it, that many of them were like, okay, well, he's coming, he's coming tomorrow. So they, they, started, they stopped making plans for the future. A lot of them just stopped working altogether, and, and, and because of this, it, it started causing problems in the church because the people that aren't working are not pulling their own weight, and they're not, uh, they don't have any way of, of uh, making any money to eat, and so it became an issue. And so Paul writes this second, second letter to them saying, hey, 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 he's coming, but keep on keeping on, keep working. Stay the course. The whole second chapter of Second Thessalonians is about that, about, hey, Jesus is coming, yes, but you gotta, you got to stand firm. you got to hold on. You can't give up. you got to keep working. The issue for the foolish bridesmaids in our story is that the delay of the bridegroom gave them time, and they didn't use it wisely. There's nothing wrong with, with what happens in the story when, when the ladies fell asleep, right? I mean, it's midnight. Um, I talk about Pastor Wesley because he's not here anymore, but, you know, it, nine, nine o'clock, he's like nod, nodding off. I don't know if you spend any time with him. And so midnight, you know, yeah, they're going to fall asleep. It wasn't about that, but they had extra time. They could have gone and bought oil. They could have filled their jars or, or gone and bought, bought jars of oil. None of the foolish young ladies noticed that the oil shortage was there until it was too late. 2 Peter 3 helps us to understand the, the purpose of the delay. Helps us to understand that there's actually a reason that God is holding back. Look at it in verse 8 and 9 of 2 Peter 3. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't 
really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's actually being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. You see, the delay is a gift. The delay is grace. Jesus isn't just hanging around. He, he, he is waiting with a sense of urgency for everyone to repent and to turn to him. He wants all of us to be in eternity with him. And then that, that passage keeps going on. Verse 10, it says, But the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. And then, just like in our wedding story, there's going to be a proclamation. Look, the bridegroom is coming. Come out and meet him. In that chapter before, Jesus says, And then at last, the sign that the Son of Man is coming will appear in the heavens, and there will be, a, and there will be deep mourning among all the peoples of the earth, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. See, our friends, the bridegrooms, were divided half and half, weren't they? There were some that were probably excited and a whole lot relieved that he was there. They're like, oh, it's about time. But then there were those who had forgotten their oil, and they were full of panic. They panicked. What are we going to do? And they began to beg, and they began to demand and that, that they should borrow something that could not be shared. The wise bridesmaids were not being mean, by the way. They realized that if they shared, then both of their lamps would go out and the the wedding procession would be dark. This this author again, J. Ellsworth Collis, writes, The sensible five are not as harsh as they seem. They're simply underlining a fact of life. No one can make it on another person's oil. (laughs) Another commentator writes, Readiness is something, and I love this, something for which each of us is responsible. That is, we cannot be passengers on another person's readiness. You can't be a passenger on someone else's relationship to God. Saving faith is personal. God calls us as individuals to be ready for Jesus' return. He does not want any individual to be destroyed, but wants every individual to repent. When the foolish girls returned from waking, uh, from, from waking the oil salesman up and doing whatever they had to do to, to find this oil in, in the middle of the night, I don't know, maybe there was a 24-hour Walmart or something that sold olive oil, they discovered that, what, the door was shut and locked. And they began pleading, pleading, Sir, please open the door, please let us in. And we can feel the burning shame, the sting of it, as we hear the words of the bridegroom. I don't know you. Jesus is echoing the the words that he gave back in another sermon on the mount. The sermon on the mount, Matthew 7, he says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. What a predicament. What a predicament. The foolish girls looked the part. They were probably dressed for the wedding. They had lamps in their hands, but it was too late. They were missing something. Look at the bridegroom's words to see what they were missing. 
It's not a mystery. What does he say to them? I don't know you. I don't know you. They were missing a relationship with the bridegroom. The parable makes it clear. We can say the right things. We can look the right part. But without a saving relationship with Jesus, with the bridegroom of the church, Jesus Christ, it's all for nothing. Harold Martin points out this. He says, three of the saddest sayings of the Bible are found in this little passage, Matthew 25, 8 through 12. The first saying is found in verse 8. Our lamps are gone out. The second saying is found in verse 10. And the door was shut. And the third saying is found in verse 12. I know you not. And my prayer for you and for me is that we're found ready. Is that we're found with a saving personal relationship with Jesus Christ. So I want you to remember three things from all of this. First, you cannot be a passenger on someone else's relationship with Jesus. Salvation is non-transferable. Faith, faith, faith can't be borrowed. Saving faith is trusting Jesus Christ alone for your salvation. Trusting in Jesus Christ alone, not on your own good works and not on the good works of your grandma. It's, it's trusting in Jesus' good works and what he did for us. And secondly, I want you to remember that the delay of Jesus is a re- the delay of Jesus' return is actually a gift for us. It's actually a gift. For those of you that may not have a relationship, it's a gift for you because right now you can be making a relationship with him. You can be asking the right questions. You can be talking to us. In just a few moments, we're going to have some people at each communion station. And if you've got questions about it, just say, hey, I'd like to talk to you after this. They'd be glad to talk to you. But it's, it's beginning to to learn to trust him, trusting him alone for salvation. It's beginning to start the process of turning away from your sins, repenting of of your past. It's beginning the process of surrendering your life to him. And then he calls you, once you've repented and confessed his name, he calls you and says, hey, I I want you to be baptized in water as a sign that that all these things have taken place. So this, this delay is for you if you haven't done that. And for those of you that have done that, this delay is for you because Jesus wants everybody at the party. We read that. He wants everybody at the party. You can't share your oil with them, but you can tell them where to get some, right? And then lastly, two words, and it's simple. It's two words. Be ready. Be ready. Just like the days of Noah, when the rains came, Now, when his family got on the ark, and it says what? God shut the door. Right now, the door is still open. Scriptures say today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. The door is still open, and Jesus still wants you, and he's still ready for you, and he wants to receive you. And so let today be your day of salvation. Let today be your day of getting yourself ready. And it's not about you, it's not about your works, it's not about how good you are and about how you, how you look, but it's about everything that he's done for you, the bridegroom. Amen. We're going to come to these tables. We've, uh, we, we're coming to a part of our service where um, if you're new to us, or if you're a guest with us, uh, don't feel any pressure. You can participate in this or not. No, nobody will judge you. But um, we've got four tables in the room.
Each one of them has communion on them, uh, communion being bread that represents the, the body of Christ and cups of juice that represent the blood of Christ. And when we go and we take those, that bread and that cup, again, as we read that scripture, we are remembering his death, remembering his sacrifice, and celebrating the fact that he's going to come back again. So that's there. On each table, there's also a bucket. And if you've come prepared to give... If you come prepared to uh, give generously, uh, you can put it in that bucket, or there's actually a way on there, uh, instructions for giving online if you'd rather do it that way. And then, as I said, there will be someone at each table who will be glad to, uh, to talk to you, will be glad to pray for you, and maybe, maybe it's something else that you need prayer for. Um, but that, that's what this time is designated for. So I'm going to pray, and right after the prayer, you can, at your own time, your own pace, Go to the table that's closest to you and celebrate the Lord's Supper. Celebrate what he has done. Celebrate the fact that he is coming again. Father in heaven.